Shalom. Welcome to Rivkush, a CJN podcast featuring conversations with Jews of color discussing all things Jewish. Today, I'm so pleased to have Charlie Y. Feldman. She is an amazing documentary director and producer, a graduate of McGill University, and she's of Chinese, Jewish, and Canadian descent. She has made films in, it seems like, over 20 countries, which is mind-boggling to me. So we're going to unpack the life of Charlie Feldman and, of course, discuss the work that she has done. So welcome. Welcome, welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. (laughs) Oh, this is super cool. So tell me about you, because off camera, if you will, off off mic, if you will, we yeah. started discussing because I had asked Charlie how to pronounce her name and go ahead and tell the, the story about the pronunciation of your name and a little bit about your background growing up. Great. Um, so thank you for having me. Um, I'm really happy to be here. And it's just one of those identities that gets a little bit, it's a little confusing to talk about in a casual conversation. So it's kind of nice to be in a space where we can actually focus on that and just like uh, be among peers who also feel similar things. So I, I'm very excited to be here. Um, I am, I was born in Montreal. My father's Jewish Canadian. My mother is from Hong Kong, um, converted um, before we were born so that, you know, the family would be okay with the whole intermarriage thing. And then we moved to, well, at first we moved to Jamaica, then we moved to Vietnam. I'm sorry, you moved to where? Jamaica when I was like a baby. <laughs> okay, we need to, okay, we need to pause on that for a moment here. Yeah. How in the world did you end up in, I know, how did you end up in Jamaica? I think my dad was just always a little bit um, seeking somewhere else to call home. And I guess when he, when he, he worked in manufacturing in Montreal and it was a time where manufacturing was sort of dying down. And, and, you know, the industry was looking for opportunities elsewhere and it looked like, hey, maybe Jamaica. I mean, I think that was honestly his, you know, his affinity to like reggae music and all of the lifestyle and and all of that. And I think he just decided that that was where he wanted to call home for a while. And then business wise, it didn't work out. So then at that time, we're talking about late 80s. Vietnam started to open up to non-Americans. So Canadians, Australians, all of that started to travel there as a, you know, seeing an opportunity before Americans could come. Um, And so we kind of landed there. Um, My parents separated and we ended up um, being raised by my father in Vietnam, going to a French lycée, which, you know, for those not familiar, like the French lycée is bent on assimilating whoever's there. So by the time I was 18 years old, we were... You know, I felt French for some (laughs) strange, strange reason that baffles me to this day. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Um, But yeah, um, and and as I was saying to Rivka, like I to you, Rivka, I I just I my Chinese side is like a still a bit of an enigma to me. Like I don't speak Chinese. I identify strongly with Hong Kong and the struggles it's been through over the past few years, but I I don't have that. The same tie, I, I would say, to my Cantonese side as I have to my Jewish side. Like, I am fully immersed in Jewish culture. It is something that is in my blood. I, I, I am raising my children Jewish. And yet it's, you know, there's this whole other half of me that I haven't, I haven't engaged with yet. 
Yeah. And do you hope one day to explore that side of you or how do you feel about that? I think that I've come to a point now where all these different parts of my background combined with my husband who has an equally confusing background. Um, he's Indian, but grew up as like what you call a Navy brat in India, which means you go from Navy base to Navy base. And then he left when he was 14 for Germany and then Singapore. And he's kind of, he's a bit from all over the place. And so he's now Singaporean and, but you know, is, is as nomadic as I am really. And um, I was going to say, there's some similarities there. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. But I think your family sounds so incredible incredibly diverse and so rich well yeah and I mean this is why you know okay I can in terms of where to put my energy right now it's like as I raise my children what is the sense of identity we want to give to them and so the Chinese side is is important but I think the multicultural side is more important than than focusing on like the Chinese side and I think the Jewish thing is important to me for many reasons which I'm sure we'll, we'll get into but um but it's it's we're we're trying to figure out how to define it, and if the Chinese side, the Cantonese side, hasn't been that prominent in my life, I I kind of can't force it at this moment because I feel like that's I have fair point. Yeah, I have a huge can of worms in terms of like yeah, that's a, that's that's a fair <laughs> what, point. How to raise these raise these children? <laughs> yeah, wow. So how many yeah. children do you have? If you don't mind me asking. Yeah, I have or two kids. <laughs> <laughs> two kids, um, three and one. So we had them oh. very close together, and during the pandemic. So, oh, I have no words for that. (laughs) (laughs) My kids are very close in age too. They were twenty months apart. So, oh well, yes, it it is. Um, it's its own little challenge. It is. Um, I say to people, they say, well, you know, at least they weren't twins. I said, but twins tend to go through the same developmental period at the same time. Yeah, try try like five consecutive years of nappy changing. Like you know, exactly. (laughs) It's like twins are out by the time they're. Okay, three maybe you know, like if you want to stretch, and you're done. done. (laughs) So yeah, so uh, um, yeah, I I I get that. Um, Wow, I'm just like this is your your background is so cool. So tell me a little bit more about because. You you articulated that the Judaism is is very important to you and is you know part of obviously of who you are. So how does that manifest itself? And and did you find that you had any? Because I speaking for myself, sometimes there's been struggles around me presenting as I do, my children presenting as they do, because they are also they are also I like to say Heinz fifty seven, a mixed bag of everything and then some, and you know, and really navigating the community and 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 who I am in terms of how I fit in. So, tell me, do you share any of that? Would you like to elaborate? Definitely. A bit? Definitely. I mean, when I heard about this podcast, I was so excited because one of my projects has been to pu- like like dream projects has been to publish a book with just photos being like Jewish in the in, in twenty twenty three, you know, like or whatever do year, it, but it, just like it. this is what we look like, you know. Yeah, um, do it. But I remember because I mean I grew up in a Jewish diaspora community and very much you know I I would dip into the Montreal Jewish community which is very tight knit, but mm-hmm. you know in Vietnam it was a kind of mishmash of like. Jewish people from around the world. Maybe we were maybe a total of forty people who would get together during high holidays. Um, 
That's more than I would have thought. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you had the a lot of Israeli travelers who would join in and, and things like that. Um, but there, there were, I mean, I grew up with like maybe two other Jewish kids who went to a different international school um, and kind of dips in and out. But I remember going to a um, Passover Seder in Singapore, and it was the first time I was introducing my husband to what Passover was, and he was very nervous and we walk up and there's a sort of bodyguard outside and he's like what are you doing here and we're like well we're here for passover and he looks at us and he's like are you jewish and i'm like yes i am it's like where are you from montreal we're in montreal oh and of course you say Luc, and like he immediately was like okay that's legit but you know you have to go through these rounds wow. of testing and and that kind of angst of like walking up to a kind of Jewish community diaspora event anywhere around the world, I always have this angst of like, oh, I'm going to have to go through those, like mm -hmm. those hoops, that mm -hmm. challenge again, you know, like, and, and that's yeah. really, that's really frustrating. And I think that it's become like a sort of cause for me to, you know, I tell my husband, it's, that is what I want to give my children is the confidence to walk into a Jewish community without feeling like they are other. And they can they can they can choose not to engage with it the same way I do, but I want them to have the option and I want them to have the confidence to do it that I feel I have to kind of build up to every single time I go oh, to Charlie, one of I these can events. So relate. <laughs> I, you know, oh, I just got a chill when you were saying that. Yeah. Because I felt like I was standing right next to you. Yeah. And that feeling I'm telling you, I work in the Jewish community. I'm often, and it still doesn't go away. It doesn't even go away when I come to my own place. Yeah. My own place of employment. I still, in my little bubble of the office, it's cool. It's when I have to go to a bigger event, I still have that feeling of, okay, who's going to ask me something? Yeah, yeah. So yeah. I, I felt like I was, my heart hurt when you said that. And what you said about your hope for your children Oh God, I, I I hope so too. Yeah, I, I yeah, because we can't. We have to do better. Yeah, definitely. And I, I think that's you know that is, you know, part of my attachment to Jewish culture is that it kind of the in the letter kind of encourages you to do better. You know, to fight that fight, and it tells you, come on, you can do this. Like, yeah. <laughs> let's yeah, challenge yeah. it. Let's 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 fight for this. Let's like you know undermine what's been told as the way it is and and let's try try something different and absolutely I remember reading an article a few years ago actually my grand my bubby sent it to me and she was like uh it was about Asian Jewish um uh kids uh at that point I think that was like the most common intermarriage or something like that and yes yeah <laughs> and and I think it was um, talking about how strongly they identified as Jewish and that the first female rabbi in the US was an Asian Jewish woman. And I was like, that's incredible. Like, and, 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 and also that goes to show, like, I think because we don't look, you know, obviously Jewish, we're sort of fighting a fight already. So you might as well, you know, go the whole, the whole mile. Go big. Yeah, go, go big. big. <laughs> like go big. become a rabbi, a woman rabbi. Become a you know? rabbi and a cantor. She's exactly. Both. Okay, amazing. <laughs> She's a superstar. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. I, I think we do. I think 
my I'll never forget my mother always saying my mother saying you have three strikes against you already. Yeah. So you, you have to be three times better than everyone else. And I think we do kind of hold that within ourselves, just to your point. Yeah. So it's like because I find I, I don't know if you feel this way too sometimes I have to people are always testing me on my Judaism you know does she yeah. really know these things and I'm thinking to myself you probably don't know it so you don't even know if I'm giving you the right answer or not <laughs> you know? totally so do you find that sometimes yeah definitely and also because I didn't go to Hebrew school growing up and I didn't I do have that insecurity oh I don't know all these things but like I then I you know I spend time with my cousins who did go to Hebrew school and, and my family and, and in Montreal and, you know, like I love spending time with them, but I, I noticed that for some reason, maybe because I felt that insecurity, I've just engaged with a lot of these things really, really deeply in a, a very international context. And when I go to some events, sometimes it's very like, let's go through the motions. And it's not necessarily like, let's like, you know, t let's engage with it. Let's question it. Let's this. You know, right. the, the the thing I'll get is like, oh, why are you being so deep about it? Why are you being so like intense about it? But I'm like, I guess I I had to engage with it to find right. myself in in some of this. And you know, when you asked earlier, like, what is what what was my relationship with it growing up? Is like, um, I I I always felt like at least. I, you know, I had a Canadian passport, but that didn't mean much. I had um, this French school, which was like a weird relationship, Vietnam, where I would never become, you know, they don't allow citizenship or whatever for no matter how long you've lived in the country. So, oh, I did not know that. Yeah, you're always going to be a foreigner in Vietnam unless oh. you are Vietnamese. And, um, and so I guess Judaism gave me this like um, borderless identity that I could, that I could, dive into and the whole principle of learning how to exist as a diaspora and being able to exist as a diaspora was just really hit home for me at a time where I was looking for that that sense of belonging wow. um and 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 there was also you know every time someone came from Canada from the Jewish community it was like oh have you met the Feldmans in Hanoi you need to meet the Feldmans in Hanoi and so suddenly as soon as a Jewish person came to Hanoi we were in charge of we were like the delegates nice. <laughs> like in charge of making sure the Jewish community coming to Hanoi would be okay <laughs> can can you say that phrase again the borderless I want to yeah. remember that what did you say about being the borderless? Like, I just, I think I've never truly identified with any of the flags that I'm associated with, but there was something about the Jewish identity that felt, that feels um, so borderless, that feels like I, I can connect with Jewish people from around the world and we have reasons to connect. And it could be, it doesn't necessarily have to be talking about the kind of strictly religious things, it, it, it is so much part of a culture that has kind of um, gone beyond borders. Right. I love the way you said that. I think that's the first time I've ever heard it in that context. So yeah. thank you for that. And, and I can, no, it is, I've tried to articulate that connection that we have with Jews everywhere that we just seem to inherently connect with each other in that global sort of way. But the term, the borderless, I absolutely love that. So I'm going to steal that. From of course, you. go for it. It's all yours. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much. So let's, let's talk a little bit about your work. Yes. Um, 
I have to admit, I'm 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 super super jealous of what you do. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I feel I, like you do some very similar thing. <laughs> like, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm just jealous of what you do. <laughs> <laughs> I have I, I've been working on a documentary now for ten years, and I, working on it, it that's. I'm, I probably shouldn't use the term working. I've been thinking about it every now and then. It's probably a better term. So when I see people taking that creativity and producing and and really, like, at your level, it's just, I'm just in awe. I'm in awe. So I do want to talk about, um, you said in over 20 countries. Please explain that. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know what happens in my 20s, I guess, because I so I, I partnered with this um, production company that was just starting and they were doing a lot of global films. And I just kind of was very, you know, a very yes woman at that time. Okay. You know, we've got this project in Nepal. Yes, we've got this thing in Myanmar. Sure. We've got this thing in China. OK, like, can you go film in Guatemala? OK, no problem. Um, uh, wow. And so... Just it just kind of happened that there was a point where I realized I was subletting my apartment for longer than I was actually living there. Living in it. And I just said, you know what, I'm giving up the apartment or the room in the apartment because it was London. Um, and I just lived out of a suitcase. And so after a few years of just like traveling around like that, I just spent another four years living out of a suitcase. Um, wow wandering around and I guess that's how I met my husband in Singapore and he was doing a very similar thing just kind of um you know we'd kind of he'd have a shoot in Belize and then I'd have a shoot in Guatemala and so we'd meet like for one week in between or um yeah that's how our relationship started but a lot of those films were um for television and they come with like the television pace of things which is you know fast turnarounds fast deadlines low budgets and I was dealing with a lot of like um heavy subject matter um a lot of trauma I you know like human trafficking um what women like selling brides um between Vietnam and China um uh the earthquake in Nepal in 2014 um the Myanmar elections which that was a bit less traumatic, but um, uh, child uh, refugees from the Syrian war who had been in exile for over three years in Lebanon and had, you know, a pretty bleak prospect for the years to come of, of ever going back to Syria. Um, just, yeah, some really <laughs> heavy subject That's heavy matter. Heavy stuff. Yeah. How do you, how do you, how do you, cope with that because while you you know people can say well this is what she does she's a professional blah 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 but you are you are hearing and seeing tragedy and even and recording it for history but how does that affect you charlie as a person like it was definitely um it took its toll on me and i you know i i i kind of operated on this rhythm of like overwork burnout overwork burnout and um and then i finally decided to slow things down a bit and that's when i um started the last documentary which was um just out at hot docs where i met your colleague michael and um so that 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 film took four and a half years and that was because i felt like I was running through traumatic stories and I also couldn't give 
the people I was working with and myself, the kind of aftercare you need when you're telling these kind of stories. Well, that's um, thing. Yeah, totally. And I, I, I felt like, um, you know, the stories were always very important to tell, but two things, one, you know, telling the story is one thing, making sure it gets an audience is another. So, you know, I never knew when I was putting these things out on television, who was watching, how they were reacting to it and whether it was making a difference. And then I was then, you know, had to rush off to the next thing without being able to take the time to process and also make sure that the people involved in the film had also taken the time to process what they had been through um, in the process of filmmaking, because it opens up a lot of wounds for for people who are engaging in in filmmaking um so so yeah so this time this time we did take the time um but you know it was a really really intense um four and a half years and i would say both sarah mardini who's the main character in the film and myself are you know doing our own healing on her own sides after this journey for different reasons. But I think um, a lot of her past caught up to her, a lot of my past caught up to me, the pandemic, all that stuff um, for me becoming a mother. I mean, all these things, suddenly you don't cope the same way. Once you're taking care of two children, you have to, (laughs) you have to, you have to stop and, and, and make sure you're okay because, um, or else you can't do what you need to do as a mother. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So that's a nice segue. Yeah. Nice. It's a segue. Yeah. Because you mentioned Sarah Mardini. Yes. And so tell me, I don't know the story Mm -hmm. um, because I and I and I thought about Googling it, but I want to hear it from you. So please tell me the genesis of this documentary and, and who she is and why. What led you to do this? Um, so the genesis for me was hearing that a 23-year-old um, a volunteer on the shores of Europe had been arrested and, and, and accused of human trafficking, money laundering, being a spy, and could face 20 years in prison. So I, I sort of looked at this and I thought, what is going on? This is crazy. And then as, as I, you know, we looked into it, um, well, actually, sorry, rewind, my okay. producers... Um, actually knew Sarah Mardini um, and her story before um, she got arrested. So Sarah Mardini has this incredible backstory. She was a champion swimmer in Syria, along with her younger sister, Yusra. And the two of them were coached by their father to kind of compete in the Middle East, mostly at the time. And when the war kind of really hit close to home for them, they decided to escape. And during their escape, uh, during the crossing from Turkey to Greece, mm-hmm. the boat that they were on, it, like an inflatable dinghy, started to sink. And as it was sinking, they had no choice. They jumped into the water and they swam for three and a half hours to keep the boat afloat and to kind of keep steering it in the right direction. So wow. um, they became incredibly famous for this story. They became probably the most famous refugees in Europe at the time. They made it safely to Germany and um, they, their story went viral and has since been made into a Netflix film called the swimmers. Um, And so that is the dramatized, like the fictionalized version of their backstory. What was even more incredible is after doing this, the younger sister Yusra decided to continue swimming and she got into the very first refugee Olympic team 
um, and competed both in Rio in 2016 and in Tokyo in what became 2021. Um, and so that is also part of this fiction film, which is obviously a very feel-good film about these two incredible sisters. Sara could no longer compete. She was the older sister. She could no longer compete. And she was um, injured from her crossing. And she decided, okay, I'm going to go back to the shores of Europe and I'm going to help people who are making the same crossing I made. And I'm going to be an Arabic translator, a rescue swimmer, and just give blankets and, and water on the shoreline. When um, And she was doing this when she got arrested. And so... At the time when I got involved, Sarah Mardini was in prison and it was like, we didn't know how long she'd be held for. We thought, what the hell, how could she be accused of human trafficking and trafficking. all these things? And very quickly, Human Rights Watch, Amnesty International looked into it um, and said, this is bogus. This is part of a um, political you know, trend to call volunteers criminals in an attempt mm. to discourage people from volunteering in an attempt to discourage people from coming because they may think that volunteers will help them on the other side wow this is all like the long story i can give the shorter version of no no I'm, I'm 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 like you've drawn me in okay, cool. like i'm just like um, holy cow yeah so sarah was arrested along with um uh, another volunteer sean binder um and they um, after three and a half months and a lot of sort of um, pressure from the you know, outside world, they were released, but they were only released on bail. And at this point, I meet Sarah in person and I'm super moved by her. She's like this incredibly charismatic, intense, like young woman. She was 23 at the time. Um, had lived many lives and sort of had this attitude of like, bring it on. <laughs> wow. Um, and <laughs> not only bring it on, but also like, you know, she, she, she had escaped the war. She couldn't swim anymore. She almost drowned. She couldn't swim anymore. She went back to volunteer. She was arrested and she was just like, I will not, my spirit will not be like, affected Clearly, by Clearly, yeah, she will not be crushed. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and wow. so I, I just realized I want to spend more time getting to know her. And I actually want this film to be as much about the political, you know, um, trend that was going on, because that's important, but very much about what this young woman was going through at this point in her life. And, and also to give her that, you know, to make it a collaboration as much as possible, you know, to kind of make it in, in her voice raw and as raw as unfiltered as you know whatever we could we could do to to kind of bring out um different parts of her story that she felt hadn't been told before because she had she had done many a lot of public speaking about it before so it was kind of like why am I making her repeat something that everybody knows is out there and there's a Netflix film that was why we kind of needed the creative space and the time to to really tell the story the way we wanted to, to do it justice and to do her journey justice. So, um, so, so we went the independent route to, for this film and, and really gave it the time that it needed. Yeah. Cause it was four years, yeah. you said, four, four and a half years, and a half years, which did sound like an extraordinary amount of time, but I understand just by what you said, why it was. Yeah. Was, we didn't know where the story was going. And initially we thought, you know what, they're out on bail and they're waiting for a trial. So 
what, maybe in a year we'll have a trial and the film will be over or in two years we'll have a trial. Mm -hmm. So we kept coming up with these schedules according to when this trial would happen. And then as time progressed, we just realized that trial's not coming. And if it is coming, which it did at the end of the film, All right. it's not really a trial. It's just further delaying justice. Um, so this has been been released correct yes uh, well in uh, it's it's doing its festival circuit at the moment well you need to keep me posted on it definitely you know definitely. so you're currently based in the uk yes yeah i caught i caught that because you said nappies yeah i know I, as i said it i was like oh i should be saying diaper no nappies <laughs> is fine i <laughs> yeah. use some british isms that yeah. i sometimes have to pause and explain to people but yeah you can use Britishisms <laughs> with me. I know them. Thank you. <laughs> oh, my goodness. The other thing that caught my eye, which I kind of love, is this, what is this brown girl's Doc Mafia? Yeah, they're incredible. They're, um, so they're a group mostly like operating in the U.S., but they're pretty global. And a few years ago, a friend of mine kept urging me to join. And I said, you know, and again, this is imposter syndrome, right? Like, it's not just in the Jewish community. I was like, well, I'm actually like half white. I don't know oh. if I can be part of like a, a brown girls group. And, you know, she had to kind of convince me to say no, you, you know, and this was and it was interesting. This coincided with when um, Black Lives Matter was happening and there were conversations, much more eloquent conversations happening about being a person of color. And suddenly, you know, when like you don't realize, but something's uncomfortable your entire life. And then, and then somebody puts words to it and you're like, oh my gosh, those are the words I've been looking for yes. forever. Yes. And, and I guess, I guess with a lot of the narrative that was coming out, I was like, yes, I am a person of color. I am yes. not white. Like, you raised, had to come to that. You had to come to that. Yeah. And I, I had to come to that because I was raised by my white father who was like, you know, there are no obstacles in life, you know, like this, this kind of <laughs> male ego of like, you know, don't whine and don't this. Don't that. Pull and like, up your bootstraps. Not, exactly. Like, just get on with it. And, and I, and I kind of tried as much as I could to adhere to that, but I was like, there's some times I look in a room and I'm like I am being treated differently or there's no one who looks non-white right. <laughs> uh, and and like or my own white family who again I adore but like you know um like like my anyway things things have 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 come where I'm like oh okay like I'm not white you know and I yeah. I just um and, it, and so brown girls Doc my was like a a very safe space to be able to have these conversations, to talk about the implications of all this power dynamic in the documentary industry. And then very specifically, for example, for hot docs in 2019, the cost of, of going there would have been prohibitive. And I think um, hot docs realized that that was an issue for a lot of non-white filmmakers. I guess they, they, for whatever reason, they decided to subsidize tickets for all brown girls doc mafia members nice and so yeah so incredibly i was able to go to the festival whereas before that i wouldn't have been able to so they made it and more equitable they made it more yeah equitable. totally yeah and it was it was incredible to see the difference between 2019 when um you know we were very much like we stood out and we were like recruit recruit find other people like us you know and 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 now where it was like oh there's there's significant significantly more representation the conversation has come so much further 
you know, you can see that there's been a, a big leap there. And Brown Girls Stock Mafia are definitely part of that. Oh, narrative. that is awesome because yeah. you can't you can't overestimate how important it is for our voices, for our lenses to be you know, on, on certain issues that Mm -hmm. have to, that need our perspective because our perspective based on just how we present to the world is, is, is often different. And to understand, in my opinion, I can't emphasize how important it is for generations coming up to see organizations like Brown Girls, Brown Girls, Doc Mafia, and, you know, to see themselves in you. Totally. And like podcasts like yours. I mean, this podcast is incredible. And when I heard about it, I was like, yes, yes, yes. You know, I was so excited to like, to to feel that sense of community and to be able to have these conversations. It's interesting, like living in London now, I'm, I'm sort of trying to find my Jewish community. And because I know raising kids, I can't, I don't have my extended family here. It's going to be really hard for me to do this on my own. But I am seeking out, like, who is the right rabbi for our, you know, our, our family. Your global (laughs) family. Exactly. Your global family. Who is the right person that will kind of, yeah, that we, where we don't have to feel that awkwardness and we don't have to, you know, and do feel empowered. Take your time. That's my only advice. Yeah. take, (laughs) Take your time, you know, because it is so key and it's so important especially with for the little people cuz you want it to you want it to be a positive experience as positive as you can make it going yeah, back to yeah. what you had said before about the future of your children right and it's so key to find that community where you don't have to justify why you're here explain why you're here tell them how you're jewish and all yeah. these wonderful things that we seem to uh, sadly be destined to have to do, but hopefully won't be destined to have to do Yeah, at some yeah. point. Yeah. Some but point. I feel, I feel like there is like a, you know, uh, I mean, I feel like people like you are making such a big difference in Thank that, you. you know, <laughs> but it's, it's <laughs> a community. It matters. Yeah. It's but it, it, it matters, but it matters that we stand out in that community, you know, mm-hmm. that we're not just kind of, sitting in the corner, which is what I tend to do sometimes when I go to like a Chabad or, you know, wherever around the world, I'm sort of like kind of shying away in the corner and I'm like, okay, I'm doing what I have to do, but I'm a little bit shy and a little bit, you know, awkward and intimidated. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. You know, it's it's the first step because there are times too, Charlie, where I am in that corner, but then I tell (laughs) my, no, I tell myself, but I am here. Yeah. So even if I'm not ready to make that step to the middle of the room or the front of the room, I'm mm-hmm. in the room. And most importantly, you see me in the room. Yeah. Yep. That's right. True. You see 100%. me in the room. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's tough sometimes, but it's also, I still think the diversity of us, and I will always think this is just a beautiful thing. Um, it's a beautiful totally. thing. And more of us need to, recognize and to see the diversity of us both within the community and outside of the community and to understand that that we are so beautiful definitely i mean i say i know that that would have been a really nice note to end on i just have one (laughs) (laughs) i guess i guess one of my last thoughts is that you know i i uh 
I say like it's funny because people talk about ethnic minorities and I'm like well in my family we've got uh, Indian and Chinese which are like over a billion represented around the world and then we have what you wouldn't call the ethnic minority which is like the white side which yeah. is like what 14 to 15 million Jewish people around the world <laughs> it's like that is my minority and and I will fight for that minority in me you know and, and that's how I feel about it oh wow now that's not a bad way to end <laughs> Charlie this has been a pleasure this has been an absolute pleasure May yeah, you have great. so much success you your family in the UK with your nappies thank you <laughs> No, it was such a pleasure speaking with you. And I am going to make sure that I see your latest documentary because you sucked me in with the description of it. And again, thank you so much for being a guest on this podcast. Thank you for having me, Rivka. And thank you. And may our paths cross again. Definitely. I would love that to meet in person one day. And and thank you for having me. Thank you for having the podcast. Riff Koosh is hosted by me, Rivka Campbell. We're produced and edited by Michael Freeman. Our theme music is by Westside Gravy. We're proudly sponsored by the Canadian Race Relations Foundation and hosted by the CJN Podcast Network. To support our work and everything else the CJN does, visit the cjn.ca slash donate to make a monthly donation and receive a charitable tax receipt. Thanks for listening. Scattered in the wind, never scattered to bend To remember where we come from and the gold that's within Zahavi Roshalai, Asur Lishkoa, Hakdushata Aret, Shenotel Anukoa